A quick announcement, everyone, before we get into the episode. We are going to start experimenting with the offering of continuing education credits for some of these shows, and this is one of them. We have partnered with Academic CME, who has uh, provided accreditation for uh, CME uh, through the AMA. And uh, if you are interested in credit, if you need that for certification or your licensing, all you need to do is go to the show notes for this episode. That's on the website, icuscenarios.com. And then there will be a very short quiz to take to demonstrate that you listened. Um, And then you'll be able to claim your credit. Now, this is something that we may do more of. We are trying it out. In the future, it will probably be supported by some industry sponsors. In this case, for this trial, Academic CME is sponsoring it out of the goodness of their hearts, so give them a hearty thank you. Give it a try. Let us know how you feel about it. We will probably only be offering these for the full uh, case episodes, uh, but for now, this is what you got. Let us know what you think. Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling, and with me as always is my partner in crime, Brandon Odo. Elu. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Emily Frydenmaker is with us to talk about some pulmonary CCM stuff. Um, Emily is a kind of longtime friend of uh, the podcast and and us particularly. Um, She did her fellowship at UK here where I work, Uh, not with uh, my group directly because she was up in the MICU. I'm down in the neuro and surgical ICU, Uh, but she did rotate with us. So uh, that was a lot of fun. She is now an attending at the Charleston Area Medical Center in uh, West Virginia, where she's from. She did her um, residency there before coming to UK and uh, went to medical school at WVU. Uh, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. All right, Emily. Well, as we all know, the lungs are the heart of the chest. <laughs> so you're. Uh, I thought the heart are, was the heart of the chest. Get, get out of here. So you are uh, covering the MICU there. When you hear about a patient who comes through your ED, this is a 71-year-old female. She's got some medical history, some uh, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, a little bit of hef-pef, diabetes, um, but lives at home and generally is doing okay until the past eight days or so when she was having some cough and some shortness of breath. So if she finally came to the ED, where at triage, she's found to be setting about 83% on room air. Also febrile, the temp about 38.2, and hypotensive with maps down in the 40s. So they throw her on some BiPAP to see if that helps, start her on some peripheral vasopressors. They take a chest x-ray, which is a little nonspecific, but it seems to show a left lower consolidation. So they're suspicious she has a pneumonia with resulting sepsis. So they start her on broad-spectrum antibiotics. They give her cefepime, vancomycin, azithromycin. They culture blood. Um, They plan for some sputum, but she hasn't really given them any yet. And they send her to the ICU. 
Um, this is in the evening of yesterday. And then overnight what happens is her work of breathing continues to worsen on the BiPAP and she ends up getting intubated overnight. So you are coming on service the next day. You hear about this patient on rounds. At that time, she's still on the vent. She's on some low-dose vasopressors. Um, she's on about 55% FiO2 with a PEEP of 8. Overnight, she was continued to be resuscitated and at this point is about 7 liters positive on her fluid balance. A repeat morning chest x-ray now shows some diffuse bilateral opacities, um, maybe a little of this, a little of that. The resident presenting the patient um, thinks, he raises the question, there may be pleural effusion, but he's not totally sure. It's kind of hard to pin down on this, you know, AP chest x-ray in bed. So to start off, how do we diagnose pleural effusion in, in these patients? This is not like the clinic patient. This is a critically ill ICU patient on the vent with other problems. How do we decide if they have pleural effusions to begin with? So the first thing that always happens is somebody gets a chest x-ray. So this lady has come in with what sounds clinically like a pneumonia. She does have an infiltrate, I think we said, in the left lower lobe. Um, and a lot of times, especially on a one-view x-ray, it's hard to know past that. Is it a consolidation? Is there a fusion with it? Um, and, you know, if they're already intubated or it's just like an ICU film, there's just like stuff in the left lower lobe. Um, so my go-to is always ultrasound for pleural effusions to look and see what's actually in there. Is it a consolidation or is there an effusion that you have to worry about? Now, when you say ultrasound, you mean you yourself putting on a probe mm -hmm. or some kind of formal study? No, just bedside ultrasound. Okay. Um, are there times when you would want to pursue something else like CT? Um, so I think for the most part, for effusion, I would always start with an ultrasound because often you can make a decision based on the ultrasound of what you're going to do. And then when you really need the CT scan is after you have drained it or done lytics or whatever intervention intervention you're going to do, you want the CT scan after that to see what you're going to do next. So rarely would I jump to a CT scan before I checked everything out with an ultrasound. And if you didn't already have a chest X-ray, would that usually be your first option or oh, you yeah. would prefer an ultrasound over that? No, I would always start with an X-ray. It's just rare that someone makes it to me without having had <laughs> an X-ray already. Okay. All right. So you, uh, you get your hands on the ultrasound right there on rounds. You have to steal it from the other team. They're doing something stupid like a tapsy or something. <laughs> but you bring it over and you throw it on the patient and you do see um, sort of moderate sized bilateral pleural effusions. Uh, looks to be significantly larger on the left. Hard to say too much more than that. The patient's pretty large. Their windows are a little tricky, but there clearly is a fusion there, you know, way up in the armpit. Now, what? So the resident says, all right, so there's a fusion now. That being said, I'm not sure what to, to do with this fact. There's probably multiple reasons for the thing. Um, it, is it uh, drainable? I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. Do we leave it alone? What do you kind of go for a next step once you've proven there is an effusion? So my next step would, to think about, would be to think about um, why she has the effusion, which you mentioned. So I think you said she had diastolic heart failure. She sure. is now seven liters positive, which we don't like. 
Um, so she has reasons other than, you know, a paranemonic effusion to have those effusions. Um, but we said that she came in septic. She's now intubated. She's still on pressors. And the left effusion was bigger than the right, which is where the, the pneumonia is. Um, so in this patient, I would say she deserves at least a diagnostic tap. Um, there's other things that can go into that. You know, if you look and you see um, loculations or it, it doesn't look like a simple free-flowing um, effusion, that can help make your decision for you too. So it sounds like you're saying there are some reasons for an effusion which are okay. Yes. Meaning maybe just sort of a, a transitive oozy thing because of, of volume overload and heart failure and such. And then there are certain reasons that are not okay, such as uh, like a infected paranemonic sort of thing and perhaps other things like malignancy and so on. Yeah. So it's always just kind of thinking about your patient and uh, do I need to know exactly what's causing this effusion? Um, if they're stable, they have a lot of other reasons to have a transidative effusion. You know, the effusion is pretty small and would be difficult to tap. Maybe you watch it. Um, but I would say I have a fairly low threshold to do at least a diagnostic tap in anyone who has a pneumonia. Okay. So if this patient was not a pneumonia sort of patient or maybe not a patient with infection at all, um, this might be someone you would kind of watch it and see. I would just diurese and and see how they do since we know they have heart failure and that they're very volume up. And then if maybe it didn't resolve, you might reconsider yeah. tapping it. Yeah, if it didn't resolve, if it didn't progress how I thought it would. Yeah, I was going to say, so what's your what's your thinking with diuresis versus just tapping immediately? Is it based on the volume that you see or do you always start with diuresis? If I think that it is a transudate and it's related to volume, I will always diurese pretty much. Um, the thought, the teaching at least, is that draining and effusion is not going to do a lot for hypoxia. Um, so rarely do I feel like draining, you know, kind of moderate effusions is going to do anything for somebody's hypoxia if it's related to their volume overload. Um, it can help uh, with their their feeling of dyspnea because it distorts the diaphragm. Um, so your brain may feel more short of breath because your diaphragm is kind of all out of whack. Um, but I'm not generally going to tap like heart failure effusions. Definitely okay. not before trying diuresis. All right. So you would try some diuresis and then if diuresis fails, maybe reconsider depending, I guess, depending on how they look. Yeah. So like this patient, if they had not been intubated yet and, you know, it's kind of iffy on breathing, you might consider draining this even just therapeutically, but you'd probably just try to diurese at first. Right. I mean, the bigger thing for me is not their respiratory status. It's it's source control. So this person had a pneumonia, um, and then they have that pocket in there, and they're still impressors. So my biggest concern for draining an effusion is source control. Okay, so for you, the whole idea of a therapeutic thoracentesis um, if it's not something that's infected or otherwise causing problems by its kind of quality, um, that's, that'd be unusual. Usually you're trying to prove that it's not something bad. Yeah. And, and we do therapeutic thors all the time in, you know, hepatic hydrothorax. Um, we will do it sometimes in volume overload. Um, but it's not, you know, I come on service and I feel like I really need to drain this effusion for like a therapeutic reason that's going to fix the patient. Okay. 
And now you said there may be some findings that would also help push you towards suspecting this was more of a suspicious exudate, um, maybe how it looked on ultrasound and so on. Um, mm -hmm. These are, I imagine, kind of rule in things. Like if you don't see them, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's okay, but. Right. Yeah. You can have an infected pleural space without loculations. But if I put the probe on and I see loculations, I'm probably going to just presume that it's infected. Now, if you do a diagnostic, Thora, are you going to, I mean, I assume you're going to probably drain what's there yeah. while you're in there, right? There's no, no point in not. Do you leave a catheter in place to continue draining or are you just in and out and that's done? Yeah. So this is a question I asked on Twitter once because um, I think it used to be a lot different. Like when um, the chest tube was going to be a, uh, like a surgical chest tube, you know, to do a diagnostic thora to decide if you're gonna if you're gonna do a chest tube was was kind of different then. So generally, I will try and make the decision of thora versus chest tube upfront, um, just with my like pretest probability of do I think this is really infected or not. So you know, I'll use my lidocaine needle, pull back a little bit. If it looks like pus or it looks really infected, maybe I'll just switch to a chest tube there. I am not usually going to use a thoracatheter and leave it in because those are really tiny. So you would put an actual like large bore chest tube in? Not a large bore, a medium bore, like a 14 French Wayne. Like a Wayne, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this kind of gets us into issues of technique. So you've decided to tap this thing at least diagnostically. Um, we don't, we don't you know, need to get into every aspect of how you do this procedure, but let's hit on a few points here. Um, number one, I'm imagining you're probably using ultrasound. It's 2022. Yes. <laughs> are, are you using ultrasound just to find and mark a location or are you using it for real-time guidance? I use it to find and mark a location. Are there ever times when you would use it during the actual puncture? I don't think I have ever done that. I can see like if it was super loculated and you thought you only had like a small window, but for whatever reason you felt like it really needed to be drained, I could see doing it under guidance, um, but I have never done that. How are you going to position a patient like this? Again, this is a patient who is essentially bed bound. They're in the ICU, they're on the ventilator, they're unlikely to be completely cooperative, although it would be great if they were, you know, awake. Um, how are you positioning them and then where are you accessing them? I'm going to lay them on the bed and I'm going to put their head up a little bit so that hopefully all the fluid will kind of, um, you know, pull into a pocket at the base. Um, and then I'm usually going to have uh, like the arm pulled up above their head and usually like tied with a restraint um, to the railing there. Uh, and then I'm going to look with ultrasound and I'm going to pick what looks like the best spot um, where I can get the catheter in and drain the most fluid. So, I mean, really as far down as you can go safely. So pretty much any spot on the chest there that looks good on ultrasound, as dependent as possible, is where you're going through. There's not as many anatomic considerations as there are just ultrasound guided ones. Right. Yeah. Ultrasound guided laterally. Um, because that's really our only option. You know, if the patient is, is awake and can sit up, um, you can also look at their back to drain an effusion or put a chest tube in. Um, but I think there was an article a while back about, um, how the vasculature runs, um, under the ribs and that it is saggiest <laughs> in the back. And so the safest is actually the lateral 
uh, mm. place to avoid vasculature. Will you ever place some Doppler on your ultrasound image to make sure there's no vessels there? Mm-hmm. I haven't had it change anything yet, but I have done it. You haven't found any surprising? Mm-mm. No. <laughs> okay. Do you ever, I, I have on rare occasions seen people do these by turning the patient lateral on their left or right side and then sticking them uh, posteriorly. Um, and I always thought it was very strange, but does that have any appeal to you or you like them on their back and you go in from the side? Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work for everybody involved <laughs> to get them up on their side and hold them while I do it. So, I mean, I guess if, I mean, sometimes it's so loculated that, you know, there isn't a pocket on the side, but maybe there's a huge pocket in the back. So I could see having to do that in that case, but not routinely. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about this, but you get in there, how much fluid are you draining? And if it's different, then tell me if it's something purely diagnostic or if you think there's any benefit towards getting some volume out of there or depending on maybe how it looks or what. Yeah. So I'm probably going to drain it dry either way. I mean, even if, you know, I go in and it looks very, um, you know, clear, straw colored, I don't have, you know, high suspicion that like this is a um, complicated paranemonic effusion, I'm just going to drain it dry either way. And based on, you know, what you said, it doesn't sound like the whole hemithorax was was whited out. So I don't imagine there's going to be more than a couple liters in this effusion. Do you have a maximum for how much you'll take? I feel like this is controversial of does re-expansion pulmonary edema exist? Uh, so the bag only holds a couple liters. So <laughs> if I was using the thoric catheter, I would probably fill the bag to a couple liters and then stop there. But if I was draining it with a chest tube, I wouldn't necessarily tell anybody that it needs to be clamped after a certain amount of time. Okay. So that's well, so my that's, hedge on re-expansion pulmonary edema. <laughs> so that's the other question then. How, how are you getting drainage here? Are you manually pumping this stuff out? Are you hanging it to gravity? Are you putting on suction? Does it depend on if you did in fact put in a tube versus just your little yeah. thoracatheter? So if I'm just doing a thora and I'm not going to put in a chest tube, I'm going to stay in there and I'm going to pump it until it's done. Um, I have seen some people just like hang the thing to gravity and let it go. And, you know, if if you're busy and you need to go check on something else, that's probably fine. Um, but generally, I'm just going to pump it dry. Would you ever put it on suction? Uh, if I put in a if I put in a chest tube, yes, I would put it to suction. Um, and then the question of whether you're going to leave a drain, it sounds like depends completely on whether you think this is something concerning like infection. Um, if it, it looks benign, then essentially never. Mm, so I think it <laughs> depends a lot again, not just on what I see there, but sometimes I make this decision before I even do a diagnostic Thora. Um, so like if the patient is sounds really septic and it was like a decent size effusion if it had a loculation I may just put in the 14 French to start with you know say we're going to leave it in you know for a day let it drain dry and and see what the studies come back um so sometimes I make that decision before I even put it in like before and the I reason to do it. that would be if you have a higher suspicion that it's infected and then you would perhaps if you yeah. took out your catheter you would have wished that you had left something in. right and I don't like to to do multiple procedures when you only need to do one. 
Uh, if you really think this is purely diagnostic, maybe you have a, a low concern, but just enough that you thought it was worth tapping, is there any difference in your technique? Um, smaller needles, smaller catheter, anything else that's different? Or you're pretty much doing it this way no matter what? I'm pretty much always going to use the safety synthesis. Um, if it was really tiny, maybe I would use like a little angiocath. Um, but most of the time, you're not going to be going after a super tiny effusion. So if I'm just doing like a diagnostic, I'm probably going to just always use the, use the safety synthesis catheter. Okay. And this brings up a kind of related question, and this comes up for paras sometimes too. Can you have an effusion that is so small it's hard to tap and yet could still be clinically significant? Or is it they kind of go together? If you can't get it, then it can't matter. Yeah, they usually go together. I would say the only time that maybe it's a problem is with really bad loculations, that there is a pocket. It's just so loculated that it the window you have to get into it is small. Okay. But I think that is rare. And then are there circumstances, whether they're that one or other ones, where this procedure has to be done, and, but somebody else should do it? You and you in a royal sense as an intensivist, perhaps a pulmonologist, if that makes a difference at the bedside, this, you're not the right person to do this. Somebody else should use other techniques or other approaches. Yeah. Um, so there have been times when it was uh, loculated like in a weird place, like maybe it was really um, just kind of high on their back or just in a place where we didn't feel safe doing it. Um, and we can ask IR to do that. All right. So you decide it is worth draining this thing, at least to see what's up. Um, so your fellow goes and performs a Thora on that left side, takes out uh, about a liter, liter and a quarter of yellowish fluid. They say it's kind of hard to tell you if it was totally clear or what. Um, what sort of testing are you doing on this fluid? What labs are you sending uh, as a kind of routine? Yeah, so cell count and diff, um, glucose, albumin, total protein, LDH. Um, a blood gas syringe to get a pH, cultures, um, and then you can talk about like cytology if you have um, concern for malignancy. Okay, so cytology is something you would do in a patient where on the table is a question of malignance, malignant effusions really, otherwise not so much. Yeah, and in general, I'm probably going to usually send cytology just in somebody who I don't know for sure what's going on, um, but you wouldn't necessarily have to. Okay. Now, for the rest of this, kind of talk us through a little bit of an approach to this. You just mentioned a hodgepodge of labs. Some would say it's a, a sort of shotgun set of orders. Um, what are you doing with all this, and how is it coming together for you? So the biggest thing in this patient is to decide, um, is it a transidate or an exudate? And uh, do I think that the space is infected? Um, so this is where we get into lights criteria, which I feel like is the bane of medical students everywhere because the numbers are so close. And I actually like often have to look it up because I confuse my 0.5s and my 0.6s. Um, so a lot of those labs, you know, you don't just get in the pleural fluid. You also have to get in the serum. You need to know the serum protein and the um, serum LDH to do these calculations. So, okay, so there are three main ones. Number one, pleural protein over serum protein is greater than 0.5. Number two, pleural LDH over serum LDH is greater than 0.6. And number three, pleural LDH 
um, greater than two-thirds the upper limit of normal. So the point of all these is if you have any one of these positive, then you most likely have an exudate. And, and an exudate just kind of in general, you're saying this is not a thin kind of yeah, it's not slightly just, proteinaceous fluid. It's right. something kind of thicker, which generally should not be in your pleural space unless there's some reason you have an increased kind of leakiness there. Yes. If if I get a transidate and I, you know, this is probably volume overload or something more benign, if I get an exudate, that's something I have to figure out why it's there and what to do about it. Okay. Now, what about the other labs you mentioned? Obviously, things like um, cultures, you're going to see if anything is growing. What about these other things, glucoses and so on? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you've decided you have an exudate and so you're kind of going down the paranemonic route, um, these other labs can help you decide if you think this is a simple paranemonic effusion or a complicated paranemonic effusion. Um, Simple means that it's kind of free-flowing, it's small, it's sterile. You don't necessarily have to drain it. Complicated um, means that you think that the space is infected, which would mean it needs drainage. So things that uh, on all of these labs point towards a complicated effusion, um, a low pH, less than 7.2, glucose less than 40, some places I see site less than 60, but a low glucose, um, LDH greater than 1,000, uh, and then like if you have a positive gram stain, which is kind of obvious. Okay, so just definition-wise, a paranemonic effusion would be a pleural effusion in the pleural space adjacent to or nearby a pneumonia. Yes. Does that pretty much sum it up? Yep. Okay. And it sounds like you could have that for a spectrum of reasons ranging from just kind of inflammation. I mean, is that why you'd have a simple one? Mm -hmm. Kind of you're irritating that area and it's getting a little bit leaky, yep. but that's it. Mm -hmm. So it is an, and is an egg day in that case, but it's sterile. Yeah. Right. Whereas if it were maybe more so more leaky, there's spread of the infection, then the pneumonia itself may have seeded that collection. And now you have a infection in the plural space as well. Right. Okay. So, and that's based on the things we're talking about. Are you actually growing bacteria out of this sample and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but so a simple paranemonic effusion, you have to, I mean, you have to work this up. You can't look at it on your ultrasound and say, well, it's an effusion, perhaps it's paranemonic, but that's probably okay because we're not going to do anything different. You have to get these labs and prove that it's not infected. Usually. If it's really small, like we said earlier, maybe you could watch it, like watch them clinically, you know, overnight into the next day, make sure they're going in the right direction, look at it again with ultrasound, make sure it's not expanding. But if it's any, you know, sizable effusion, you should probably find out if it's simple or complicated. Okay. And the relevance here is that a more complex effusion is requires source control. I mean, the patient may not get better if you don't actually drain this. Right. A complicated effusion means you think the space is infected. And if the space is infected, you don't have source control until you drain it. Are there times when you can treat these medically just with antibiotics? Um, with simple effusions, you can. Um, you know, you don't have to feel compelled to drain it if you just did a, if you did just do a diagnostic thora and got 50 mLs out and there was still, you know, fluid in there, but but everything points to simple. You don't have to drain it. You can treat that with just antibiotics. Um, in general, though, it's, if it's an infected space, it needs to be cleaned out. All right. So a patient like this, you tapped them, you sent your labs. 
Let's say it comes back and per lights, it is an exudate. Um, what do you then do? I mean, let's say, let's say they didn't drain it dry initially, or let's say they did. I mean, those are the two options. Mm -hmm. I mean, how are you changing what you're doing at this point? Um, and you know, initially you may not have all your kind of microbiologic studies as well. Mm -hmm. So you may not know for sure, is it truly infected, but it's certainly at least, uh, Paranomonic effusion. Yeah. What are you going to do this differently? The patient's on antibiotics already, and mm -hmm. you have your labs. Now what? Um, so you mentioned that it's an exudate, but I would want to know the pH and the glucose because you'll get those back immediately too. You know, you won't have your cultures. Sure. So the glucose would be lower if it looked more infected. Uh huh. And the pH is playing into this how? Um, if the pH is less than seven point two, then you generally think that it is likely an infected space and you would want to make sure that it's drained, which I would put in a chest tube. Okay. So a more acidotic effusion is mm -hmm. more likely to have a bacterial growth there. Yeah. What's, what's a normal pH for the pleural space? It's high. It's 7.6, I think. All right. So I guess let me play this both ways. Let's say your glucose was low and your pH was low um, what, are you then going to go back to this patient and place another tube? Yes. If there is a fusion there and I have a window where I can put in like a 14 French Wayne, I would go back and put in a chest tube. What if you, you or whoever did this really thought they got all the fluid that was there at the time with the, the one time the Thora? Yeah. Is that good enough for now? Yeah, or? that's okay. You can follow it um, with ultrasound and with x-ray. Um, and if it comes back, then I would put a tube in it. <laughs> if not, then, you know, maybe you got your source control there right off the bat. Now, what if your pH was more normalish, your glucose was not that remarkable? Um, then what? Are you going to go try to drain this further? Let's say there was still fluid. Uh, no. If it looks like the pH and the glucose were okay, um, there weren't any loculations, I would say this sounds like it's a simple paranomonic effusion and we don't have to feel compelled to drain it dry. Okay, unless uh, things like your gram stain, your culture has started coming yeah. back positive and then you would reconsider. Yeah. Okay, what about your antibiotic coverage? Let's say this seems like a more complex effusion, maybe you're gonna go drain it further. Um, this patient was on sort of cap coverage, mm -hmm. so cefepime, vancomycin, azithromycin. He was pretty sick, so it's pretty broad, but does it matter if he now has this complex pleural effusion? So the difference in kind of cap coverage uh, or even HAP coverage, you know, and once you add a pleural effusion is you need to add anaerobic coverage. So if this patient is on um, vanc, cefepime, and azithromycin, uh, Atypicals don't typically cause uh, paranomonic effusion, so you wouldn't feel like you had to have the azithromycin, but you would want to add metronidazole for um, anaerobic coverage. Uh, is there a duration of therapy which is different than for pneumonia? Yeah, so if you have just a pneumonia, you know, a simple effusion, antibiotics are usually one to two weeks. If you have a complicated effusion, you're looking at a longer course. Um, Regular complicated, maybe two to three weeks. If you have an empyema, which is frank pus in the space, then you're looking at probably four to six weeks with like follow-up imaging after that to decide when you're going to stop the antibiotics. Okay. And this is um, another question of definitions. A complex pleural effusion differs from an empyema only in the sense that 
there is like visible gross pus for an empyema? So complex is actually different than complicated. Um, Great. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So empyema is a subset of complicated. We said that complicated means that the space is infected. Empyema is a subset of that, which you get frank pus out of that. Complex is a whole different thing that means it's loculated. So you can have a complex, complicated paranomonic effusion. <laughs> so complex is a sort of anatomic or visual yes. commentary yeah. on it. Okay. Uh, but it, it, and so a complicated effusion is already infected. It just becomes empyema in that there's pus. And yeah. I mean, this is sort of a, seems like a, a weird distinction. Isn't pus just like the presence of a bunch of neutrophils and things like. Yeah. And I mean, you're going to drain it the same, you know, in both of those scenarios, you're going to drain it. The difference is maybe your antibiotics are going to be prolonged. And I think um, the prognosis is the difference. So if you have an empyema, your prognosis is worse than if you just have a complicated paranomonic effusion. Is this literally a like visual diagnosis? Like, does mm -hmm. it look like pus, or is there like a laboratory threshold of some kind? Oh or? no, it looks like pus. It <laughs> okay. and it and it smells like infection. And empyema is like you never forget it once you smell it. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of a it, it's a surrogate for the kind of how high grade the infection is. Is yeah. it like a little bit of infection or is this just like full of bacteria yeah. and white cells and stuff? Yeah. And you said for a, for an empyema versus a non-empyema complicated, you would drain it the same way, right? There's no need to put a bigger tube in because there's pus there. Right. Or, okay. Right. And there used to be a thought that, you know, uh, your tube's going to get clogged and maybe you need a large bore, um, but that has not panned out. And, as far as tube size goes, there's not a lot of like um, prospective data. They did in the MIST trial, in the MIST-1 trial, they, I think, retroactively looked at tube size, um, and tube size didn't matter. It didn't um, impact uh, rate of VATS or rate of resolution or anything like that. So um, the thought is that a medium tube which is 10 to 14 French should be fine. And typically that's what happens is you get a 14 French if a pulmonologist is doing it. If um, sometimes from IR they will get small tubes, like um, eight French or so. Uh, and I don't love that. You know, the data says that it should be fine, but they very easily get twisted and clogged if someone is not flushing them frequently. And and that's especially a problem if you're in a hospital where, like, the nurses may not be allowed to flush the tubes. Um, you may not have a doctor who can come by and flush it, you know, every six hours and make sure it stays patent. So if I'm putting something in for an empyema or a complicated effusion, it's going to be a 14 French. Okay. So whatever size tube is in there, it's there. There are antibiotics. Uh, is this going on to suction at all times? Yeah, I'll put it to suction at least at first until um, the drainage slows down. And then how do you know if you are achieving your ends here? How do you know if you're getting the source control that you need? Yeah, um, so imaging, you can follow their x-ray. Um, you can check again with ultrasound. If you get down to where, you know, you've had it on suction, you've had really good drainage, um, and then you're down to like maybe it's only putting out 50 a day or 100 a day. Um, at that point, that is when I would want to get a CT scan if I can't tell an x-ray. You know, if your x-ray looks amazing and there's no fluid there, 
um, and, you know, you didn't think it was loculated, you know, you may be able to say, fine, this looks good. We're going to take it out. Um, but if there's any question, that's when I would re-image to see if I've achieved, you know, getting this space evacuated. What would be reasons that you were failing to get good enough drainage here? Uh, usually loculations or viscosity of the, of the fluid. So what, what do you do in that case? So in that case, that is where um, you can use lytics. Uh, so TPA and DNase, um, it's, you use it BID for three days. And you put them in, and the idea is that um, TPA is a fibrinolytic, so it kind of busts up those loculations, and then DNase um, chops up the DNA. And so it reduces the viscosity of that fluid. Um, so you put it in twice a day, uh, and that should thin it out and help you to evacuate the space. Okay, so you're injecting these into the tube directly. Mm -hmm. You're, what, clamping it? Yeah, so I like to have a three-way stopcock on, like, the 14 French. And in the mist trial, they would put in the TPA. They would clamp it for an hour. Then they would open it for an hour. They would put the DNA in. They would clamp it for an hour, and then they would let it drain. Um, so you can do it that way, or um, there is some data that maybe doing them together is fine too. And logistically, that is how we usually ended up doing them: was putting in, in the DNA and the TPA together, letting them dwell, then open it and letting it drain. Um, where I did fellowship, like the nurses weren't allowed to open up open the stopcock or anything, and so having to go back multiple times when you're the only person at night covering, you know, the MICU and like pulmonary floor patients, um, just logistically was really difficult to get them their lytics on time. What if you're not able to get drainage by those means? So <laughs> this is where um, there's, you know, there, if you read up to date and everything, it says put in another tube. So you can, if there's a lot of loculations, maybe IR can come and, you know, put a tube specifically in the loculation that you haven't gotten in. Um, rarely they'll try TPA and DNA again, uh, like if someone's not a surgical candidate. But generally this is when you would talk to surgery about doing a VATS. Okay. So they'll just go in uh, under direct visualization and kind of mechanically scrape all this junk out. Yep. Clean it out, decorticate it, get everything out. How do these patients do in the longer term, kind of subacutely and chronically? Um, is there a good prognosis after these kind of plural infections? Um, are there mechanical or kind of pulmonary complications that can develop from this? So if the space is evacuated um, in a pretty timely fashion, um, they can do fine. Uh, if this is something that has gone on for quite some time, um, they can get trapped lung. Um, so with trapped lung, basically you just get this peel over the pleura that doesn't allow um, the lung to expand. Uh, so sometimes that can be so bad that they can come back in with like a restrictive defect um, because that, that can't, uh, the lung can't expand. So in that case, sometimes you can do like an elective decortication where, you know, if you think that this trapped lung is causing them respiratory compromise and, um, you know, this restrictive defect, then surgery can go in and just like peel that rind off so that the lung can expand. Okay. So that, that is a reason to take care of this upfront in a timely manner is so they don't have that complication later on. 
The other thing I was wondering, I meant to ask this earlier, is it generally safe to say that the organism growing in these empyemas is the same organism that caused pneumonia? In other words, if you grow out uh, whatever, can you narrow your antibiotic coverage for, for sort of both infections to only target that? Uh, yeah, I would. But it's really pretty rare in my experience that you actually grow something out of the, out of the fluid, the pleural fluid. Is this related to already having received antibiotics? Um, maybe, probably, because I think, you know, oftentimes they'll get antibiotics up front and then they won't get drained until the, you know, the next day, the day after, depending on their clinical course. Um, but just, you know, whether it's that or some other reason, rarely have I gotten a bug out of the effusion, even if we've gotten something from their sputum culture. So maybe it's the other way. You should assume that if you have some other positive culture, that's probably what's growing in your effusion, even if you couldn't prove it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, something that we haven't really touched on, um, you know, we're kind of talking about paranemonic. The other place that you see this really commonly is with endocarditis and septic emboli. Um, I would say, you know, I may have placed more chest tubes for that than I have for like a complicated paranemonic effusion. So that's just something to keep an eye out for if someone has septic emboli to consider. Do they have uh, an infected space to go with that? Oh, so that would be a great example where the original infection was in the bloodstream yeah. and then is seeding your, your pleural space. Yeah. All right. This has been a great look at this topic. Brian, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, yeah, this has really been good. This is a lot of stuff that, um, you know, I do these sort of things not infrequently, but um, very rarely to this in-depthness uh, because I think most of our in the surgical and neuro ICU tend to be, you know, these things from volume overload, heart failure, et cetera, that just kind of we drain and that's that. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been good to, to kind of hear the, the further workup. Now, what about if, uh, what about if you have these kind of recurrent problems where, you know, you, you drain it and they just keep coming back, drain it, keep coming back. Um, what are your options there? So do you mean in the ICU or kind of like longer term with recurrent pleural both, effusion? Both, yeah. So, I okay. mean, in the ICU, I guess you could just keep putting tubes back in, but uh, it's not a great long-term plan. Yeah. Um, um, so generally, you know, assuming you have controlled the infection, uh, but, you know, someone has a persistent pleural effusion, uh, like that is where we start to talk about, um, you know, control of a of a chronic pleural effusion. So with that, you can have um, pleurex, which we usually consider for malignancy, um, or you can talk about pleurodesis. And now neither of these would happen in someone who was infected, um, you know, in this kind of paranemonic world that we've been talking about. Um, but if, you know, you have an effusion that is not related to, par to uh, a pneumonia or an infected space, you could talk about those two options. Um, pleurodesis is where... Um, you know, there's two different ways you can have a chest tube in and we can do like medical pleurodesis where we would put um, an antibiotic or talc in it and it inflames the pleura and causes them to stick together. So there just isn't a space there anymore. Um, the other option is they can do surgical pleurodesis where they go in and they literally just like rough up the pleura so that it will kind of scar together. All right, Emily, what else should we know about this topic? Final thoughts on pleural effusion. And I think especially this is kind of in the realm of, of basic critical care, but it's also 
getting to the edges of it where it becomes more of a, a pulmonology topic. And, you know, as a pulmonologist, what should we know about this that we may uh, be getting wrong? Um, I think you should just always have suspicion for it. So if you have someone with a pneumonia who on their x-ray has um, like a full space down there, a blended angle, um, look with the ultrasound. Always start with the ultrasound. Have a low threshold to do a diagnostic tap um, or, you know, therapeutic. Have a low threshold to get fluid to figure out if it's an infected space. Um, if it is an infected space, don't be afraid to put a chest tube in it and, you know, go to lytics or ask for a VATS. I would say that we are less aggressive in general than we should be with uh, complicated paranormonic effusions. All right. Well, thanks so much for walking us through this topic. We'll leave it there. Remember, everybody, this is really just the opinion of the folks on this show, not of our respective institutions. Uh, and please don't base your medical care just on the things we've said. We don't know much. Uh, this is just a general educational content. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks.